Hello, people of 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. And say farewell to the year 2023. This will be the last podcast episode of the year. I have spent the winter break continuing the translation of Nikiforos Grigoras, the historian and intellectual of the mid-14th century. This might very well be the longest East Roman historical text. I can't find any that is longer so far. It's going to take me a while to get through it, but it's going well. At the end of the first volume, he talks about an interesting episode. Some ambassadors had come from the papacy to Constantinople to open a series of discussions about union. This was one of the perennial features of ecclesiastical history of this time, as the Catholic and Orthodox churches tried to find some way forward together. And Grigoras includes a long speech that he allegedly delivered. He puts it right in the history. It's about 20 pages long, where he argues that they should not engage in a discussion. It has very many interesting arguments. Grigoras is not a conventional thinker by any means, and because there's very little scholarship on him, I think the depths of just how intellectually eccentric he was haven't yet been appreciated. Anyway, he makes a number of arguments here. One of them is that the doctrines of the faith cannot be proven through logic, like, like through syllogisms and like, or empirical science or anything like that. So there's absolutely no point in engaging in disputation about them. Ultimately, they are grounded in scripture and the church fathers and the um, creeds of the councils. But he also argues in that speech that scripture and the church fathers are ambiguous and that sometimes they speak in figurative ways, sometimes literal, sometimes they contradict each other. So his theological epistemology comes out of this speech rather unclear. But he also makes one other point with the clarity that is very typical of his writing. And when I read this, I I just wanted to hug him. It was great because I, I agree with him about this. This is the main problem here is that in the dispute between the two churches, there is no judge, there's no arbiter, there's no system by which the dispute itself can be resolved. Now, we know that the Church of Constantinople believed that ecumenical councils were the way to resolve these disputes. Uh, This was a solution that was pioneered by the first Christian emperors, Constantine, the, the Council of Nicaea, So when you have a bunch of bishops who disagree about something, then you convene them all together, and the council is a way of resolving the dispute. But by this time, the Church of Rome did not accept that and had developed theories that the Church of Rome itself alone makes those final decisions. So there was no agreement about how to resolve disagreements. And I think Grigoras is right that above and beyond any of the particular issues that the two churches might disagree about, such as the procession of the Holy Spirit and the filioque clause and the Latin creed, the leavened versus unleavened bread, and so on, 
ultimately it comes down to the question of, well, who can resolve these? How can they be resolved? And you, if you can't resolve the question about how questions are resolved, you're at an impasse. And that's the point that he drives home. There's no point in engaging in a debate under those conditions because he says it's like people who have a dispute, but there's no judge. Eventually they'll start slapping each other and then using fists and eventually someone's going to pull out a sword. Grigoras's position was that, you know, we just believe what we believe and we carry on. But this is, of course, not what most Orthodox theologians or Catholic theologians, is not how they approach the issue. For many of them, this was a kind of what we would call culture war, where you pile up arguments to show why the other side is wrong and your side is right. These texts, which are abundant from this period, and kind of start around, well, the 9th century on the Latin side, the 11th century on the Greek side, they are abundant. Some of them are very, very long. They are a staple of intellectual production at this time, and yet they are remarkably understudied. These are texts that we can conventionally call you know, against the errors of the Greeks on the Latin side and against the errors of the Latins on the Greek side were prolifically produced. Many of them survive in many manuscripts, and they were clearly a chief preoccupation for many, many people at the time. Modern scholars, myself included, devote lots and lots of attention to texts that survive in one manuscript, essentially one and a half, like Celos's Chronographia, historical texts like Ataliatis and so on. But these other texts that are kind of in the background but form a great bulk, I still need the love <laughs> that they deserve. They really are important texts for um, not just intellectual culture, but also for understanding issues of identity and religious culture. And one scholar who has done phenomenal work in making them more accessible and, and studying them and bringing them to the attention of the wider scholarly community is my guest today. She is Alessandra Bucossi, who is a professor at the Foscari University in Venice. And among many studies that she's published um, on these texts and their context, including an edited volume that I will reference in the um, episode description. She's also a principal investigator of a project to create a database of these texts. And I will put a link to this also, if I can find it, in the episode description. Uh, the project is called the Repertorium Auctorum Polemicorum de Pace Discordia Inter Ecclesiam Graecam et Latinum which translates to a repertoire of polemical authors concerning the peace and discord between the Greek and Latin churches. Sorry, I was translating the Latin rather literally there. Now, these texts, yes, large tracts of them are dry and polemical, you know, what you would expect, but also there are incredibly funny things in them too, um, and everything in between. They really are worth reading, and, and I hope that these projects do uh, make them more accessible. A couple of notes on some technical terms that Alessandra uses during our discussion. Uh, she mentions the incipit and the designate of texts. 
uh, this is a way of referring to texts by the um, first words in them and the last words in them. And this is in case that we don't know who the author is or there is no title or a number of authors are um, mentioned maybe in different manuscripts. And so this is one way of, of designating uh, texts very specifically. And another one is clavis, which is Latin for key. Um, and it, um, it's a, it, it, it's a scholarly instrument for classifying texts and, and making them, you know, available in a, a bibliographical taxonomy. That um, anyway, a reference, work, a reference work for scholars. We do have all of these Latin terms embedded everywhere. All right, I will stop there. Many thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, this is a fun conversation with Alessandra, so here it is. Alessandra, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on. And I always have there some colleagues who I've been reading for years and years, and you're among them. And I'm just waiting for an opportunity to find a way of sort of pitching your topic, the area that you do research on to a more general audience, because sometimes our scholarship is pretty specialized and it's very difficult to turn into a, a like an audio or, or a podcast discussion. And you've done some really, really great work um, on some texts, especially the 11th and 12th centuries. This is where I followed you the most. I know you do more. Um, and I thought these texts are interesting enough and kind of important enough in the sort of constitution of these cultures that we're discussing that they should be better known. And so I thought of having you on, especially in connection with a, with a project that you're involved in, so that we can just talk about what they are and, it, and illuminate this side of the culture that often doesn't get talked about very much. So thanks for coming on. Wow, um, it is a pleasure. So the topic in particular, so what you're an expert on, among other things, is this polemical literature that emerged between what we call the Greek Orthodox churches and Latin Catholic church in the West in, uh, you know, mostly in the 11th to 14th centuries in particular. Like this is when a lot of these texts were produced and they're criticizing each other. So before we get into what these texts are doing, can you just tell us a little bit about the historical stage on which this is being played out? Um, you know, what is the historical context that leads to these um, authors writing these works against each other's churches? That's a very complex issue, but um, some of our audience might just want to be situated very generally, like what is going on between the churches that this literature is being produced? Uh well, as we all know, I mean, disputes, heresies, schism uh, within the church, and by church, I mean the universal assembly of Christians. Uh, I mean, these heresies and disputes go on from the first centuries to today. I mean, they are innumerable. <laughs> My research focuses, as you said, on the division between the two Christian denominations, what we call today Catholic and Orthodox churches, but for the medieval times, I would be more inclined to use Latin and Greek churches or mm. Eastern and Western churches right. or Church of Rome and Church of Constantinople. I mean, I know you are very precise with the terms, uh, so I wouldn't call them, sure, um, Catholic and Orthodox. Yes. So these disagreements and ruptures with 
within the church caused the production of an enormous amount of literature, pieces of writing, treatises, letters, anthological compilation, even verses and poetry. Um, and they are composed to demonstrate that the other part was wrong and to prove the orthodoxy, so I mean the right belief, of an author and its own part. That's to you know <laughs> clarify the beginning. So excluding, let's say, all this split and divisions uh, uh, of the universal church. I mean, we cannot certainly you know, talk about all of them, mm. uh, but I concentrate on the process that brought the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople to be in schism. Uh, and this is a, an extremely long process. And we can detect some traces of tension uh, as early as late antiquity, for example, the Canon Three of the Second Council uh, of um, Constantinople in 381, or the 28 of the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 1451, when the fathers decided that the new Rome should have the same prerogative of honor of the old Rome. So we can see right from the beginning that there was a kind of tension between the two seas. Um, so to be very brief, <laughs> sketchy, mm -hmm. um, since really we cannot talk uh, about the entire evolution of the relationship between the two churches. We could say that the situation uh, started to become more hostile um, from the ninth century, perhaps the age of Charlemagne, I mean, the, the age of the two, two competing Roman empires, mm. um, and certainly mm. in the ninth century, we have the open conflict between the Patriarch of Constantinople, Photius, and the Roman papacy. Uh, so generally speaking, we use the time of Photius as the most meaningful starting point, because Photius accused the Roman Church of heresy, because the different interpretation of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. So I'll try to be um, more detailed, but not too much. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I cannot avoid a technical term, which is filioque. I mean, Photos accused the Latins of having inserted in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed which is the definition of faith composed during the first two ecumenical councils, so Nicaea or Constantinople, 325 and 81, the sentence filioque in the passage of the creed dedicated to the Holy Spirit. This means that they added to the original sentence, the Spirit proceed from the Father, the words filioque, which means and from the Son. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the issue is quite complex, <laughs> but to simply, simplify it, we could say that the term procession and the verb to proceed are technical terms that indicate the eternal way in which the spirit exists. So the Greek authors would say the tropos disiparxios, the way of mm -hmm. existing. So the Holy Spirit eternally exists proceeding from the Father, while the Son eternally exists, being generated from the Father. 
And I cannot explain it further <laughs> because <laughs> these are the mysteries of God. And there are tons of writings trying to understand and explain these mysteries. So yeah. uh, we would and need a couple of hours to discuss that. <laughs> for sure. And there are two general issues that are bundled together here. First is the fact that you're adding something to the creed in the first place, like a kind of, that's kind of unauthorized, regardless of whether how innocent it is. And second, the issue of whether the specific addition is theologically correct. And, and exactly. so both of these issues are kind of debated sometimes separately, but usually together. Yes, exactly. I mean, there is a kind of uncanonical addition. I mean, you are not supposed to add anything to the creed. And then there is the second half of the discussion, which is the theological point of view. Right. So if this procession from the sun is acceptable or not. So Fortius was basically the first one who tried to demonstrate that the Latins were wrong from the theological point of view, in fact. And to him is attributed a very famous text called the Mystagogy of the Holy Spirit. And this is a text that remained fundamental not only until the 15th century, so the end of the Roman. I was I was tempted to say the Byzantine Empire, but then I look you at can. your face. No, 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 no. There's no I'm not policing anyone's vocabulary. You can say no. whatever feels com comfortable to I'm, you. I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so no, I, uh, it remained fundamental. I mean, it is fundamental even today for our studies. So this is yeah. a very important text. Yeah. So I'll be very quick in my re historical reconstruction, but uh, so I'll move on uh, to the famous schism of 1054, uh, which you have written a very interesting mm. paper. Mm. Uh, so we all know this is the occasion during which, I mean, the Patriarch Michael Carolarius excommunicated the papal legates who were present in Constantinople to discuss with the emperor and in which the legates, I mean, excommunicated the Patriarch. The question of the 1054 is extremely complex. And so for the sake of discussion, I would just say that uh, in this occasion, the topic, um, the central topic was not a filioquium, but was the usage of leavened and unleavened bread. So um, if it is possible to use the bread without yeast, um, for the Holy Communion, or if it's more appropriate to use the uh, leavened bread. Uh, the amazing fact about the 1054, I would say, is that the mutual excommunications of 1054 were officially lifted only in 1965, which is just amazing. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, at least we must remind it because of this reason. I mean, it certainly, mm -hmm. I, I mean, gained so importance I, throughout the centuries. Yes. I remember in the early 1990s, the mayors of Athens and Sparta realized that the Peloponnesian War had never been formally ended, and they actually had a ceremony where they signed a. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so yes, I remember. I mean... Never forget anything. Yeah. Anyway, um, I must confess that from my point of view, the most interesting part and the least studied come after the 11th century because right. the well, we all know that this is the point when Eastern and Western parts of the medieval European world, I would say, came again into close contact. 
mm. um, with the Crusades. And from that point on, the intellectual exchanges between the flourishing Latin, proto-scholastic, and then scholastic intellectual production met again after many centuries, ancient and late antique philosophy. So the 12th century is mm. one of the most, most exciting uh, period, I would say, at least from my point of view. And while well, we are talking about, I mean, Lat a period where there are Latin theologians like uh, Anselm of Canterbury, I mean, Peter Abelard, Peter Lombard, and then in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, the, the Greeks were discussing, or at least, I mean, we will try to understand if there were exchanges uh, with very important Latin philosophers. So... What we need to demonstrate now uh, is how and when and if also the two cultures interacted and possibly influenced each other. So this is why I concentrate my studies on the period between the late 11th and the 13th century. Mm. Then oh, going on again, very briefly, I mean, I'm really sorry. I mean, this is not a lecture of history, of course, mm. but um, I need to mention the 1004, of course, and the beginning of the Latin domination of Constantinople, which lasted for almost 60 years and the trauma of this aggression, of course. Um, anyway. Quite soon after this infamous capture of Constantinople, we all detested, the two churches started to work on agreement. I mean, they, they tried to bring peace to the church quite early. I mean, in, in the 30s, at least, we have traces of it. And there are various attempts and various encounters throughout the 13th century. Uh, one of the most famous is the attempt of the Council of Lyon in 1274, when uh, Michael VIII tried to impose the reunification of the Latin and the Greek churches. Well, these attempts, I would say, like all the other attempts by the emperors, um, had clearly a political more than a religious purpose. Um, I mean, he wanted to gain the support of the Latins, he wanted to avert any threat threat that could come from, from the West, possibly another crusade, possibly the attempt to regain Constantinople. So mm, we can say that basically this was his reason. Anyway, any, every time the medieval Eastern Roman emperors tried to impose something on, on the church, well, we could, could say generally that the church split into parts, I mean, into different parties. They usually fought against each other, but at the end, the emperor was almost near, always defeated and, and the church either reunited in, in some cases or in very few cases split into parts again. So that's yeah. more or less what, what happens with, in the relationship between um, the emperor and, and the church when the emperor's try to impose um, something so complex like the reunification with uh, the other denomination. And finally, I would quote also the Council of Ferrara Florence, of course, 1438-39, uh, and that was the last um, attempt or unification of the church that was then rejected by the Greek church in 1484. So I would say that more or less these are the most famous uh, events. 
Yeah. And the apparent sincerity with which the attempts at reunification were pursued are sort of in striking contrast with how little they succeeded or the, the kind of you know, vigorous reactions that they elicited um, again and again. But like, I don't doubt the sincerity of the people who are involved in these discussions, in the negotiations. But as your kind of introduction revealed, there's so many issues that are tangled up together in these um, debates from theological issues to issues of, of practice, um, like in the Eucharist, uh, to the church order, um, including area, um, matters of jurisdiction. So you know, the papacy had very different ideas about how disputes within the church should be resolved. I referred to Rome for final arbitration, and the Church of Constantinople had very different views about how those kinds of um, overarching uh, disagreements should be resolved. And on top of that, you have all of the politics, right? So especially in the era of the Crusades, where these theological issues or ecclesiastical splits become either pretexts or dangers that can mobilize armies, which is kind of incredible if you think about it. But yeah, that that is how it worked. So in all of this very complex mess of negotiation and disagreement and tension, we have the production of all of these texts that you study, um, which are mostly polemical. Can you Tell us something about the content of these texts. That is, what are the main topics that they focus on? And what are the main accusations that each side is making against the other? Because they're not entirely parallel. They're accusing each other of different things. So what does the corpus look like sort of from a, from a distance? What's the big picture? Well, uh, we have uh, already mentioned some of the accusations, like, for example, the filioque, so the doctrine about the way in which the Holy Spirit exists and if he is from the Father or from the Father and the Son or from the Father through the Son. Mm. So we have at least three possibilities here. Well, the Azimes, I mean, the, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion and the East in the Bread, and of course, as you just mentioned, the primacy of the Roman pontiff. So the role of the Roman pontiff in the universal church and therefore also, I mean, his relationship with all the patriarchates. Um, and these were the main points that remains more or less stable um, from the 9th to the 15th century. Mm. Uh, so they were also discussing the Council of Ferrara Florence, for example. But there are also other points, like another point discussed in Florence, uh, which became important only from the 13th century onwards, was the question of the purgatory. So the fact mm -hmm. that the Catholic Church believes that those who died with their, let's say, penance foreseen unfinished, uh, must submit to a purifying fire in their afterlife. And that is a, a topic that was not discussed before. But uh, I certainly would like to suggest to our listener to read, for example, Tiakol Baba, the Byzantine list and uh, mm. the errors of the Latins, and uh, Edward Sichensky, 
birds, azymes, and purgatory and other issues that divided the East and West. I mean, because many of these accusations are extremely hilarious. I mean, the Greek, for example, accused the Latins of eating beavers, jackals, and bears. I mean, very funny accusations. So many of them are extremely serious. I mean, um, are theological issues, but others are really funny, let's say. (laughs) Um, So trying to simplify, I mean, the Latin accused the Greek of being schismatic, first of all. I mean, uh, because they didn't recognize the authority of the Pope. Um, While the Greeks mainly, uh, I mean, more seriously from their point of view, accused the Latins of being heretic because their doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit was considered to be an heresy. So, I mean, the point of views are extremely different. I mean, it is different to accuse somebody of being schismatic. I mean, it is easier to heal this kind of uh, division. But, uh, um, I mean, when you talk about heresy, I mean, it means to change the doctrine of the church. So, I mean, that's much more serious. And that's... one of yeah. the reasons why this lasted <laughs> forever. I-, I wanted to ask you about that. But first, I just want to make clear that there's a certain asymmetry here in each topic. So, for example, when it comes to the filioque addition, the Greek church is the one that's more sort of ag- aggressively pushing the case that this is an error. And the Latin church has to defend itself against that accusation. Whereas the tables are flipped when it comes to the, the accusation of schism, because the Latins understand this to mean disobedience to the Pope, so breaking away from the order of the church and, you know, forming your own separatist, you know, uh, assembly. And there the Greeks have to defend themselves that no, that there's no, there's, there's no built in requirement that Christians need to, um, the Christian churches need to be in some sense subordinate to the Church of Rome. Now, and you're right, all of these other hilarious sort of accusations, which are like from today, they would be in like tabloids or culture war or things like that. There's kind of xenophobia and, and, you know, ethnic, ethnic stereotypes and things like this. Um, But about the point of heresy. So my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Church of Constantinople never formally this you know decided that the church of rome is heretical like this comes up in texts that are authored by you know x and y person or whatever or these accusations are made but it's not the formal position of the church of constantinople that rome is heretical right or am i wrong well no there is no formal declaration of that no yeah, yeah. I mean, there are texts, as you said, where they are accused of being heretical. They describe their interpretation of the procession as an heresy. Yeah. Yeah. But this thing um, is very interesting. And um, they actually, I mean, one point I would like to highlight is that since in the um, scriptures and in the writings of the fathers, there is almost nothing about the the doctrine of the procession. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the fathers 
um, interpreted it somehow uh, in a different way because they don't go into the details. I mean, the procession was not a matter of discussion for the fathers of the church. They discussed if the spirit was God, but not how the the technicalities about the procession. So at a certain point, they they needed to resolve this issue. Uh, When they realized that the Latins were proposing a different interpretation, they needed to resolve the issue. And they debated for centuries um, exactly as they did about Christology. Right. I mean, it, it is exactly the same process. Yeah. So why um, the point is that we don't have any ecumenical council fixed, recognized by both the churches. Right, right, right. right. Describe it in details which one is the right interpretation of the procession right so because even the council of florence was then rejected right so and there is no ecumenical council about that so it's like if this topic is still floating in the air somehow yeah it is it is yeah no, I. That's interesting. <laughs> and I meet people who are like sincerely committed to the fight, one way or another, about the yes. procession of the Holy Spirit. Like it's it's an open issue, and some people, you know, very passionately take sides. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I also think that since there is no final ecumenical council declaring which one is the right doctrine. None of the authors we are going to talk about is considered a father of the church. Right. Because, you know, there is no, no final yeah, yeah. decision about that. Yes. So how can we say who was the winner in the competition? You know what I mean? Right, right. It, it precludes having recognized church fathers on both sides if there's an open yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, actually, I once had a journalist explain to me. This was a while ago. This was during the the worst moments of the Greek financial crisis. I don't know, mm-hmm. twelve years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Explained to me that the the real problem with Greece is that it never accepted the filioque, and That's and this so explains funny. yes, it explains the financial problems because he somehow and I cannot remember how managed to connect some sort of mental structure that's involved in the Catholic version of the Trinity that would have helped financially if Greeks were thinking. Anyway, it was really incredible. Okay. Very interesting. Okay, I digress. Okay, so what is the size of the corpus of these polemical texts? Like, how many are we talking about? Because I know know a lot of them are not, they're certainly not translated. Some of them aren't even edited properly. Um, And I sometimes get the impression that there are, pretty significant corpus. Um, can you give us a sense of its size? Yeah. I, I made some calculations for you. Okay. So uh, up to now, we have made an inventory of uh, 135 texts, from mainly from the 9th to the 12th century. Uh, 32 of them are from the 15th century. Um uh, 
but we are working on this. So this is what we have done mm. up until now. Is this uh, both Greek and Latin? No, no, no. This is our only Latin. Only and Latin. this, yes. And this number does not include letters and official acts. Okay. okay. So we have worked a bit on 9, 12, and a bit on the 15, and really a bit. And this is the first number. From the period, uh, for the period from the 13th to the 15th century, I have outlined a very first list of around 100 authors, not text, authors. Mm. So let's say that well, they can probably wrote two each, hmm? but mm. some of them wrote 20 works. So, mm. And it goes up to 250. So you could do 135 plus 250, excluding letters and official acts. Right. Uh, so to this first figure, you should add anonymous texts, like treatises, lists, and so on, that have never been counted. I mean, some attempt by Tiakul Baba in the book we mentioned before. Uh, we will find them for sure, but we need to... I mean, we need a lot of time because to discover all of them, we need to carefully research all the existing catalogs of manuscripts right. because they are still in manuscripts. On the top of this, we need to add letters, official acts, anthologies, various canonical compilations. So I can only try to <laughs> actually right. make a guess. I mean, guess the minimum amount, which I could say could be something like Minimum could be 500 texts, I would say. Right. And but some of these texts are it's a guess. really long. Yes, some this are. Is important. Extremely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and written by authors, we, 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 know, we study for their other works, like Nikitas Honiatis, for example, the mm -hmm. historian. But mm -hmm. I, I asked you to give us a sense of the scale of this corpus because it is significantly larger than, for example, historical, like East Roman historical texts that we study so much, right? This, they, this is dwarfed by the corpus that you're talking about. So in terms of like cultural production and investment and like what mattered to people who are writing, what you're studying is like at the front, right? It's like with hagiography, it's like that level of, of its cultural presence. So, so tell us about the repertorium. Um, so, what is what is what is it, and what are its goals? Oh well, okay. I tell you a bit of the history of the repertorium first. Yeah. So, in uh, 2016, uh, the end of a conference that um, dedicated to the division between the Roman and, and the Constantinopolitan churches, which I had organized thanks to a research grant of the Italian Ministry of Education. We discussed the desiderata of our field of research exactly because it, it's enormous. So we 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 really need um, tools. Uh, so uh, we dis we agreed on the fact that amongst the most urgent needs, certainly um, there was a repertorium. I mean, to have a sense, you know, a grasp, an idea of how large is the entire corpus. 
So Marielle Blanchet and I decided to create this first systematic repertory, and we called it Repertorium Autorum Polemicorum, the Pace et Discordia Inter Ecclesiam Grecam et Latinam, but familiarly is known as RAP. That's how we call it, <laughs> to, be, to be very, right. you know, yeah. Uh, so this is a fundamental uh, research project. I mean, a project that aims at discovering, preserving, communicating right. historical records. I mean, yeah. we hope that the scholarly community will build on this. I mean, we build new knowledge, develop new theories, methodologies, interpretations. I mean, we are really... Oh, sometimes I feel like we are archaeologists, you know. Yeah. I mean, we are still digging out from manuscripts, mm -hmm. texts. So that's what we do. Yeah, so the yeah. yeah, tell me. It reminds me a little bit. So here at the University of Chicago, we have uh, what used to be called the Oriental Institute. Um, it's now called the Institute for the Study of Ancient Ancient World or something like that. And it has these massive collections of like Akkadian texts. But they're not all cataloged and I, mean, I think they're cataloged they're not published and so it's like primary research what you call fundamental research to just mm -hmm. go into the and find texts and publish them and edit them and so forth like it's really primary and so I sometimes ask like a seriologist and so like well so how many texts that you have from like this period or whatever and they say well at least a hundred thousand but we don't know yet because we're still looking for them yeah exactly we don't know yet I mean, that's a little bit that, like that yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't know yet. So, so I mean, we 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 were inspired, of course, by sister disciplines. Uh, in our case, were the claves patrum, like mm. the, those edited in the Corpus Christianorum in Brepol since nineteen fifty one. Uh, but we decided to build um, an online tool because the data become old very quickly <laughs> I mean yeah. for, because there are new publications new discoveries so it doesn't make any sense to create a, a clavis print a printed clavis nowadays anyway uh, what do we do with these texts and um, first we search for all the variant names of the authors and the variant name titles because Many authors are known under different names, and many texts are known under different titles. So this adds also a bit of uh, you know mess in the whole thing. Right. Um, we link we add links to prosopographical projects and dictionaries and encyclopedias in order to be sure to identify um, the author. For example, we add incipit and designit because this is, generally speaking, an, a good way to identify a text, although it's not always like this, but we had some very basic bibliography um, related to editions, translations, studies devoted to dating, manuscript tradition, or identification of the author. So um, usually publication, there are uh, related to the text in itself, not to the interpretation hmm, of the text. And plus, there are other important features we decided to add. These are our sets of keywords. 
um, we describe each text on the basis of the polemical issues that um, are debated in it. So, mm-hmm. union, primacy, whatever. Uh, we use um, the literary genre that um, describe the text in modern terms, like dialogue, treatise, letter, right. and so on. Yeah. But we add also the Greek term that is used in the title or in the titles, like antiresis, like refutation or syllogismi, syllogisms, or uh, apodixis, demonstration. I mean, because it would be very interesting at the end to see how they describe their texts and not yeah. how we describe them. Yeah. And finally, um, when they exist, we put a type of, of relationship between texts. So, for example, if a text is a refutation of another, or if it's a translation of something else, um, and, and so we link the two texts when it is possible. Right. And so more or less, these are the, the, the data we put in it. Where we put our data, uh, we were very lucky because um, this project is also in collaboration with Pinakes, the super yes. huge database of yes, manuscripts yes. yeah, of the Institut de Recherche Histoire de Texte of the CNRS in Paris. And so the data are safely stored there. So even if we, I mean, disappear uh, and we go live, uh, I don't know, in another planet, the data will be there. And um, they are searchable through a dedicated website hosted by Kaposkari University. So from the huge amount of data that are in, stored in Pinakes, we extract only the data related to the polemical literature. So basically, this is a collaborative international research project to which, unfortunately, we devote basically our spare time. I mean, because unfortunately, we don't have any rich research grant who, I mean, that could help us. And so we work, let's say, on a voluntary basis. Um, but of course, we keep applying in order to raise some money for improving and enriching the repertorium. And we are very happy to enlarge our research team, uh, including other scholars who are willing to contribute or scholars who want to just send us, you know, uh, details. For example, they are looking for something else in a manuscript, but they bump into a text and they I mean, can just send us an email with the details. We will be very happy to work on that. So. Okay. Yeah. So everyone, you heard it here. Um, <laughs> this is yes. something that, yeah, if you can contribute, you can, we can crowdsource a lot of this work if, mm-hmm. if that helps. Yeah. So I'm fascinated why this body of text, which is, as I said earlier, is sort of very important for understanding this culture and its intellectual preoccupations. Why is it so relatively understudied? I mean, I do get that sense that it has been overlooked, in even in terms of fundamental research. So, is there, like, in a lot of books, I will read sometimes that, oh yeah, all of these texts are being produced, and you sort of hand wave it as like, yeah, we understand that this is happening in the background. So why hasn't more attention been paid to them? I mean, I have my own suspicions, but you probably thought about this more. You, you, you. So I'm asking you. Yes, yeah, so I'm also curious to know your 
uh, reasons. But anyway, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you mine. Okay. Um, well, first, I would say that um, one of the reasons is the composite and multi-layered nature of the polemical writings, which requires a complex philological analysis, for example, to reconstruct sources by an author. I mean, the source could be biblical, patristic, philosophical. So these are really complex texts that from the outside look all the same, but you, mm. if you study them carefully, that you will realize that they are quite complex. A second reason could be the sophistication of the theological and philosophical argumentations. I mean, these are... I love to call them bravura passages. I mean, the authors show their talent in fabricating complex and kaleidoscopic arabesque of thoughts. I mean, they, but they are doing it by playing with very few variables. I mean, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, so, I mean, you must be very, you know, creative, you know, to, to produce something different on the basis of these three persons. Well, third, uh, I, I would certainly add the distance between the, let's say, medieval aesthetic and the contemporary canons of literary beauty. I mean, uh, we perceive all um, the texts that do not display a highest degree of novelty and originality as they were repetitive, tedious, mm -hmm. monotonous. So we don't, I mean, we don't like them as that's very simple. But um, I would say also that many of these texts do not provide us any historical detail. Right. So there are no events. Right, right. And so they have been considered useless by historians. <laughs> That's one point. Uh, but I think this is also a tragic mistake because to correctly reconstruct how the two churches separated and how the two positions hardened or in many cases softened, because there are also, I mean, different positions, more, I would say, milder, you know, milder positions. Um, so to understand this process, we don't have any other tool than these texts. Then, uh, well, other very well-known reasons like the fact that Byzantium, as you, I mean, wrote uh, many, many times, is still a victim of stereotypes and bad press, of especially of the Enlightenment. So, I mean, let's say Voltaire and his judgments. So whatever is related to the church and theology must be discarded, excluded. I mean, it's art rubbish for priests. I mean, that's the general understanding. Yeah. I would say also the fact that in some cases, I mean, even scholars who dealt with this very subject, I mean, regarded only their own author as a genius, while all the others are boring and repetitive, which is kind of strange. Um, finally, I mean, um, if you allowed me, uh, uh, I would like to mention a uh, kind of private experience, but not very private, but um, the anonymous evaluation I received for a project I wrote, which was dedicated, so it's anonymous, so we can, we can quote. Sure. 
uh, was dedicated uh, the project to the entire production, um, polemical production in three languages, so Latin, Greek, and Old Church Slavonic. And the evaluation was the scope of this research is very narrow, in my opinion, and doesn't address important challenges. And I thought, okay, so according to him or her, we can live without knowing one of the most important causes that divided Eastern and Western Europe for centuries. I mean, let's mention, for example, I mean, the role of religion in the Yugoslav wars, I mean, from 1991 Mm. and 2001. I mean, this is such an important issue that I was astonished, really. Anyway. You you know, for a second there, as you were speaking, I thought you were going to say that the report said that it's too broad, not too narrow. Yeah, that's that that. That's exactly why I, I, I was like without you know mm. words to comment this. I mean, I was like, wow, I can't mm, believe yeah. this. Probably I didn't explain myself properly, I thought. I don't know. Anyway, of course, my opinion is completely different. I mean, um, the reunion of the churches was for many centuries. The water is for us petroleum and gas. I mean, the key driver of international cooperation and international conflict yeah so so perhaps next time i write a project uh, i'll mention petroleum and gas and i'll see if they understand me better yeah well all these topics are renewable in a certain way i mean every generate every every time you propose them you have to you know pitch them in a different way and so a, a lot of the reasons that you mentioned i i've thought about not, i mean not all of them but Yes, I mean, in particular, I'd like to emphasize the the insistence on literary originality, uh, which our field has been struggling to find and articulate in you know medieval Greek texts, like how are they are written literature and original and so forth. And this body of texts tends to be um, dismissed in in large part because like the the, the top, it's perceived to be sort of repetitive and one author is copying the arguments from another and it goes on and on and on and and then that is one of like this is where it's generally dismissed even when we know the author like Katakuzinos for example wrote one of these and you read in studies of Katakuzinos well this isn't a particularly original work because he's recycling arguments from previous ones um so there's that so I also I'd like to you know maybe add a reason here though you know maybe you won't agree I, I I don't know but I think that especially scholarship in the second half of the 20th century was like conflict of verse in other words it tended to deprioritize topics that were essentially about conflict as is when you put polemical in you know the the very title of the thing I mean this um not just in religion, right? But even things like, you know, cultural conflict, ethnic conflict. I have the sense that scholars who, you know, especially came of age after World War II were living in a a Europe that was trying to build a sort of more peaceful and, you know, to downplay conflict, just prioritized other things. And these topics were just not appropriate to the moment. Um, especially since, as you've said, they're kind of open topics. In other words, you can't guarantee that that someone working on these topics isn't going to be like personally invested in them. 
in which case we just have old, you know, all nationalism and church, you know, kind of church nationalism in a way. So scholars just kind of engaging in the controversy under the guise of doing scholarship on it. Um, and, and it becomes, I think, I, I don't know, I think for that reason, this topic was just kind of uh, somewhat radioactive. Um, wow. I, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. yes, I see your point, but I see also that in, I mean, the history of the church was going through a completely, I mean, different well, probably the same approach. I mean, trying to pacify, I mean, if you think about the ecumenical movement. Yeah. But the point is that it's not that they didn't write about, let's say, the filioque or about the attempts at reunification of the churches. They did, but many of the works we can read um, are not, exactly dedicated to the text to the content of these texts mm. that's why i was mentioning of also i mean the different taste we have for literature I mean, or also the complexity of this argumentation mm. because in fact i mean many many of many studies reconstruct historical events are the enlargement developed between the two churches, but very few of them go into the details of mm -hmm. this kind of literature. Yes. I mean, that, that's why we think it is important to read again this um, long history of a you know, division, starting with the only documents written by the protagonists. <laughs> I mean, no, you're so right. You, what you're they really right. wrote, I mean, yeah. because we keep repeating they are the same, but in fact, nobody mentions them. I mean, right, right. no, you're exactly right. And this extends even outside of this corpus. So, for example, as I mentioned, I began to translate Nikiforos Grigoras, the history, mm -hmm. which has not been, it's been translated into German only. Um, and I've wondered why this is a very important, his primary historical text. Why has no one translated into any other language? And this is a partial modern Greek translation, but and I suspect the answer might be that the, like the last third of it is hardcore theological polemic against Palamas. Like it's not, it's not about historical events. It's just Grigoras refuting the theology of Palamas for hundreds of pages. And yes. honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure myself how I'm going to deal with that. I mean, I can understand it, but. It's like I don't know if there's a case can if a case can be made to just translate the historical parts only and leave the theological treatises for something else, or if I really should do the whole thing. No, you should do the whole thing. The whole thing. Oh. But of course, I mean, because the two things are in, in entangled. I they mean, are, you can't divide are. the two. I mean, that would be a mistake. Yeah, I because know. I mean, his purpose was to write this kind of history of his period. I mean, well, it, it became that later on. Not when he started. When he started writing, I don't think this issue existed on the horizon at all. But really? as he was writing, it became more. <laughs> more, yeah, more well. oh, I have to do that now. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, uh, we can help you. I mean, just, you know, yeah, ask for I'll, some help to those dealing with this stuff and they will help you, I'm sure. I'll work through it. I'd, like all the different kinds of light that I have to learn about. 
<laughs> anyway, um, okay, so so we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask one more question because it's very interesting stuff. Some of these texts have very colorful and inventive titles. So we, we were just talking about literary originality, but the titles of some of these are really, really interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us a few of them and what they mean. Well, okay, I thought about this thing of the title. Um, well, certainly I would say that some of them have more colorful content, as we said before, about the list yeah. than titles. But, um, I mean, there is a long tradition of, of interesting titles. I mean, we can mention, I don't know, the Panarion of uh, uh, Epiphanius of Salamis in the 4th century. I mean, he wanted to create a, a basket of remedies, Panarion, uh, against the poison of the snakes. So, of course, the remedies are the fathers and, and the snakes are the heretics. But um, I would mention certainly the titles used uh, during the 13th, 12th, 13th century. I mean, very fashionable um, titles like collection of weapons or military equipment. Uh, and yeah. actually, it is quite different to talk about remedies to rescue someone yes. and uh, yeah. collection of weapons to kill someone so yes. i mean it is already meaningful i would say but in this case i mean the three main panoplies um sacred arsenal by kamatirios and dogmatic panoplies by zigavenos and Koniatis, are uh, in fact all the, the three are quoting a passage from saint paul's the letter to ephesians 6 uh, 11 i mean put on the full armor of god right. so that you can take your stand against the devil i mean this kind of yeah. many other texts have mm, very simple titles that's why it is very difficult to identify them like contra latinos i mean <laughs> Oh, con against the mistakes of the Latins, or how to explain to a Latin that the spirit is not uh, from the sun. Um, so, I mean, that's why the incipit and the decimate we put in the repertorium are very important because yeah. uh, we hope this will help also those who um, make catalogs of manuscript to identify the text instead of leaving in some cases like anonymous treaties against the Latins, which doesn't say much right. yeah, on yeah. the text. Yes. And and also I would like to draw attention to the some of the um the illuminations that you find in the beginning of some of these texts. So for example, some of the most famous images of Alexius Komnenos, the emperor, is mm -hmm. from the first pages of one of these texts where he is yeah. receiving the knowledge of the church fathers and mm -hmm. And, and the, the image of Alexis is pulled out of its context often. And I might be guilty of this myself, where you don't see the other page where the church fathers are bringing him their knowledge. Yes, yeah. Yeah, as yes. yes. <laughs> anyway, Alessandra, this has been fascinating. And I think this topic is, is, well, for lack of a better word, it's fun. I mean, I think it's very intellectually engaging and you're doing very, very important work. So I hope that everyone who listens to this is now more aware that all of this potential and scope for fundamental research exists and to contact you or, or help in whatever way they can. So it will be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for both your work on all of this, which I've been following for years, but also for starting this project because we really need to have some order put into this um, so that we can, you know, carry on and do even more interesting work in the future. So thank you. Yeah, thank you.